Hi, I'm Tom Power, and welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. Welcome to the show. I hope you're staying safe. I'm coming to you from my living room in downtown Toronto. Uh, I went out for a walk last night or a couple of nights ago, and it was just, uh, it was so spooky and so eerie. And I got home and thought, that spooky, eerie feeling is actually a good thing because it means everyone's home right now. So if you're home right now, staying inside, I said to someone the other day that the Prime Minister of Canada, I live in Canada, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau came on and was like, if you're staying inside, you're doing a, a great job. And I said to someone the other day that uh, do, to sit on my couch, eat chips, play video games, and be told by the Prime Minister that I'm doing a great job is every millennial's dream. So I, I could not be happier. <laughs> I could not be happier uh, about the constant validation that I'm getting. Uh, I'm excited for you to hear today's show. Thanks so much for the kind words on our Alice Gerard episode. Um, this is uh, episode four of eight, so we're halfway through the season of season one. Um, this is this has been really amazing, and the response has been really great too. So thank you so much for for sharing it with your friends and subscribing and all that. I was excited for this interview for a long time. It's with Bela Fleck, the banjo virtuoso. I went to Bela's house down in his basement studio, past his kids' toys, sort of down this winding carpeted staircase. And we sat down uh, across from one another at a table with a glass of water each and talked for a little bit over an hour. And I was really taken aback at various times by how honest he was, how giving he was uh, to the questions that I asked him, and how well-examined his life is. Like, he's obviously thought a lot about how strange it is that he's ended up where he is in his life. You know, and since we've been editing this interview, Steph Coleman, the co-producer of the show, and I have been kind of texting back and forth, talking a lot about this interview, about why this guy who plays the banjo never has like a piece of straw in his mouth or wears, you know, overalls. No, no disrespect to the overall wearers, but he never really does that. He's loved by so many people without ever needing to compromise any part of himself. Like you go to a Bale Fleck show, you sit down, you got your program, you look around you, there's classical music fans who, you know, probably have subscriptions to classical music things, uh, jazz, serious jazz purists, who I imagine with a goatee and snapping and wearing a beret, even though they're probably just normal people. And then, of course, people who are standing in the aisle and spinning around in a circle for pretty much the entire show. Each of those groups tend never to step outside of their preferred genres ever. How Bela manages to bring them under a big tent without compromising anything is sort of unprecedented. And I think it's a just topic of discussion in the community of how he does it. I think through the story you're about to hear, the story that Bela tells of his life, you start to get an answer just by the way he tells a story, how incisive he is, how driven he is, and also how kind and empathetic he really is. I have been a very big Bela Fleck fan as a musician for a couple of decades now, but I came away from this interview really admiring him as a person as well. I'm excited for you to hear this. Here's my conversation with Bela Fleck. What do you miss about it? It's the neat thing about living here, actually. I love, that's one of the reasons I wanted to live here, because all those guys were still alive. Bill Monroe was around. Earl Scruggs was around. And even if you never saw them, you know, it was just the same. You know, you're aware it was happening. Someone said to me they moved here because even if they didn't listen to the Opry or play the Opry, it felt like the center point of their existence. Like all roads lead to Mecca. All roads kind of lead to the Opry if you're into this music. I guess so, yeah. I, I, it was never part of my upbringing or my, my, uh, my thing. So the Opry itself, I mean, it seemed like really cool, you know. And of course, the original bluegrass band playing on the Opry is a big big pull and that's why they're all here but 
but um, it wasn't as central to my my trip as as other things. Are you like Manhattan, New York? Yeah, yeah, Upper West Side, Hundredth Street. Nice part of town. It is. Uh, it is now. I mean, it was a hundred and twenty-five dollar rent-controlled apartment oh. for three and a half bedrooms for a school teacher and her her kids. Your folks who you, 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 divorced. Um, you know, just, so it was my mother and my older brother and me. So who was the one who named you? Uh, that's my father. My father, who I only met in my forties. Oh, really? Yeah. So he was a classical music fan, big time. Yeah. And he just was he a, a musician? Was he? A... Um, he ended up um, teaching um, kind of dead dead languages and stuff like that at the University of Maryland. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe he's gone now. I'm not positive, which tells you a lot about the story. But I I, uh, I did search him out. In fact, Tony was a big part of that story. Tony Trishka and I went together and found him while we were on tour at one point, and that's when I first met him. But uh, yeah, big uh, you know egghead. Um, professor of dead languages and a huge classical music fan who wanted to be an opera singer and it didn't work out for him. Right. So he named us after all these classical influences of of, of his. Um, Are all your siblings named after classical composers? Well, um, there's only two of us from this father, but we both got lots of names. Right. So Anton Leos, you know, um, uh, Anton, yeah, Bela Anton Leos Fleck for uh, Janacek and Webern. And, and Bartok. And Bartok, of course, yeah. yeah. And my older brother got named Ludwig. Is he Ludwig Igor? Uh, he's he's L- Ludwig Friedrich, uh, Richard Friedrich Flex. So there's some Wagner in there, and I'm, I'm not sure who Friedrich is. Maybe maybe I'm not sure. Did you know, did you, maybe Handel? Possible. Yeah. Yeah. But then he was, he flew the coop. There's a song called A Boy Named Sue. Yeah. Ever heard that one? Yeah. So, so he named us these names and then he flew the coop and then he was not, he was not to be found and he was not involved and he was, he moved far away and never, never was in contact. So it was, it was the Darth Vader effect. Right. Did you, did you know what your name, did you understand what your name was growing up? Yeah. Yeah. I knew I was named after Bela Bartok, but I didn't know anything about Bela Bartok Mm -hmm. except my stepfather was a classical musician. So when, when he came into the picture, um, he, you know, he was doing string quartets and stuff around the house on a regular basis. So I got to start, start hearing some of that music. And, you know, frankly, some of it I really liked. Some of it was, I would fall asleep trying to, but I would always try to read along on the scores, even though I couldn't really read. I just followed the the shapes and it was, it was fun, you know. Well, what so, you, I, yeah, I got a lot of classical influence from my stepfather. And, and what Probably your, very different influence than my father would have preferred because he had very, very Catholic tastes. Right. He was very strict. He wanted to be an opera singer. He probably would have wanted you to be a... Right. A particular, yeah, and when we finally did get to know each other, he, you know, he he wanted to know why I didn't listen to this or why I didn't like that, or you know, it was it was very odd. Did he know who you were? Yeah, he'd been uh, spying on me from a distance. Yeah, right, a little bit. Yeah. What was your mom like? My mom is around. She's uh, she's a lot of fun. Good good lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Grew up in the Queens. Moved to the city. Um, and, you know, pissed off her uh, her uh, father by marrying this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a kind of a, like a Nazi and a Jew. You know, he was like had a Nazi vibe or something. I don't know. Yeah, um, he was he was a dark um, force around my my mother's Jewish family. Right. You know, so he was kind of the opposite. It was probably the the thing she chose that could have most angered my grandfather. That's that's what she who she married, and then it didn't work out. And but then there was a a good. Uh, you know, everyone got back together when he was out of the picture, and there was uh, they were great. My grandparents were great, and my grandfather's the one who got me my first banjo, and my grandfather is also the one who, um, whose house I was at when I first heard the banjo. Were you like an arty kid anyway? 
Were you were you into? I was into uh, Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone and the Frontier and the Indians, and I was into then. I then I got into you know, but but keep in mind this was the '60s, so I grew up on the Beatles being the biggest thing that had ever happened, and the music was happening. And my big brother Louis was really into everything, so he knew about Miles Davis. He knew about all these Broadway show music. Things yeah. he knew, he knew everything about everything. But didn't you go to an arts? Didn't you go to an art? High I did school? in high school. Yeah, so that was you know I was pretty well, pretty well formed by then. I and there must had... have been a proficiency at something in order for you to be there. Yeah, I played. Uh, I could play. Do um, here comes the sun on guitar, finger picking style, and I was I was all over it. I could nail it. So that was really good. I was way better at that one thing than any other thing I could do. And I'd learned some blues scales. You know, I'd had a guitar teacher that lived upstairs from me on the uh, sixth floor, I believe. We were on the third floor. Uh, and uh, and I'd go up there, and he'd, he'd teach me the blues scale up and down the neck, which meant, meant when I finally got my banjo when I was 15, I was already f- familiar with the idea of movable scale positions going up and down the guitar. And then now that I was playing banjo, that made sense to me, uh, you know, a few years later when I was trying to expand the possibilities of, of playing the scales and stuff, so that single string style. You had a musical aptitude before. Yeah, I was always very musical, but yeah. I wasn't, I, there was no fire lit. It was, I, right. you know, it was one of those kids, you know, oh, he's, he's into music. That's nice. He's into music. That's something else from, wow, that guy is fired up about music. And that happened to me in a flash. Once my grandfather gave me that banjo when I was 15, I, cha- I transformed into type A character and... Do you have fla- that way ever since. Do you have flashbulb memory about that? You know, like, you know, um, the same way you can remember where you were when, you know, on, when Kennedy was shot, or you can remember where you were when, you know, when... It's hard to tell as many as interviews, as many interviews as I've done now, what is my memory and what is me t- retelling the story. Right. I've told it so many but, times. But, 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 but when, I, I when feel like I remember. in your head, what does it look like? Yeah. Uh, the getting of the first banjo, the hearing of the Beverly Hillbillies. Theme. Oh, that's very. I've told it so much, and so, um, but um, but what's in your head? Like, what's in your? What I are you picturing? S- I see me and my brother, my older brother Ludwig, who goes by Louis, um, being allowed to 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 sit on my grandparents' uh, bed and watch TV very unusually during the day. While something must have been going on, they must have needed to get rid of us for some reason. So they let us watch TV, which never happened. And on com- and we got to watch a couple of sitcoms, and on comes the Beverly Hillbillies, and I just remember sitting there with my big brother, us little 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 guys, and um, you know, but talking, we were talking because after Earl Scruggs came on and played that unbelievable opening to the show, the Beverly Hillbillies. I remember asking him, did you hear that? Did you hear that? You know, and uh, wasn't that amazing? And he was like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. And then knowing enough, I must, I was old enough to know the music was going to come back at the end. So I don't know if I was five, if I was four, I don't know how old we were, but it was, it wasn't, it couldn't have been more than six at the most. And, um, and then saying, wait, wait, it's going to come back at the end. It's going to come back. So I was old enough to know that. And then uh, it came back on, and I said, "There it is again. There it is. That there, there it is." And I said, "Isn't that amazing?" And he went, "I, I guess I don't know. That's I'm, my memory of it. And I can see in, myself there." In I'm almost room. in tears hearing the story, to be honest. And mm. I'm not a very tearful dude, but like I can tell. I don't know. I just love. I love hearing about a transformative moment. I can tell that was a your your life completely changed. It did because the TV was on. It did that day. And what's interesting now, as an adult, uh, with a son who's uh, well, two sons, but the one one is. Um, 
Juno, um, he had one of those transformative moments with the television too. And the TV is not divorced from the uh, impact, I have to say. But um, um, because when you never get to watch TV and all of a sudden you're put in front of a TV, whatever you see first is very magical. So part part of that sound coming off the little TV was so exotic and amazing. Mm-hmm. It stuck with me. For him, it was golf. Mm-hmm. I hear he's really good. He's really amazing golfer. And, but the thing is, the only reason he's an amazing golfer is because we wouldn't let him watch TV. And then his grandfather begged us, oh, let him watch a little golf with Grandpa. Now think about Grandpa's TV in his basement, like the lair, <laughs> the beautiful, huge, amazing television. And put this little two-year-old in front of this um, amazing sound system beautiful incredible screen and watch a golf ball go across it and of course he goes absolutely berserk yeah and so and he just he had that aha jumping up and down moment he just started yelling he got it in the hole he got it in the hole and from then on he's been a golf freak that's you must be able to see some of yourself in there you must be mm-hmm. absolutely to, must be meaningful for you obsessive quality that's good though it's we're, not all bad when you got the banjo where you what, what kind of banjo did your grandfather get you it was like uh a k Type of it, it didn't. It was like a K that nobody had written K on. It was black headstock, nothing else. And did you have those? Did you have the finger picks? Did you? I had to get them. No, I didn't know anything about that. But uh, my grandfather lived in uh, in Peekskill, New York. He'd retired from his car wash that he'd had in Queens and moved up to Peekskill, which was great. And uh, and so I would go there and play when I was a kid and play play in the stream and catch salamanders and and uh, and swim in his pool. And so it was nice. Um, but. Um, it was an hour from the city, so on the way back that you had to take this train of the the uh, Hudson Valley line up and down um, from Manhattan to Grand Central Station. And on the train on the way back, uh, a guy, and I seem to remember that his name was Marshall because I had a few run-in, run-ins with him as the years went on, saw me with the banjo and said, is that a five-string? I said, yeah. And he, and he was like a mutton-chop hippie guy because remember, this was, you know, early 70s right. um, and he said uh, can you play it and I said no he said want me to tune it up for you and he, I said yeah and so he tuned it up for me and showed me the basic roles like within a day of getting the banjo because I didn't know how to tune it right? but I was just so excited about it did I you just, have an aptitude for it at first did it make sense to you yeah I don't I don't know that's hard for me to say because I wasn't really anyone I wasn't really anybody around looking at me doing it I was just by myself um, I, I didn't want to put it down I know that much so I went to my guitar teacher. I had a guitar teacher then called Alan Corby. And Alan sent me to a guy named Eric Darling pretty quick. I had gotten the Pete Seeger book, that was, and it wasn't making much sense to me. Had you heard Earl Scruggs? Did you know? Yeah, I still remember. Like I, My banjo awareness from whenever I was five or six, four, whatever it was, to 15, 10 years later, I was a closet banjo f- fan, but I, I wasn't really telling anybody or making any big deal about it. Isn't that interesting? You, yeah. You were, you... I never thought I could play it. I thought it was such a... Uh, one of those things nobody could actually do. I, nev- I never thought I could do it. So I, that's why I never got one and never asked anybody or never told anybody about it. I just figured that was just one of those things that you could marvel at. Your grandfather just said, one day I'll get, you, I'll get, him, I'll get the kid a banjo? He just got it because I was playing some guitar up until then, because that was an instrument that seemed doable. My mother played a few folk chords on it, and so when I was seven, I believe, um, I begged her to get me a guitar, which she didn't want to at first, because she, she liked being the only one who who knew how to play a little bit of guitar from camp. She was a camp counselor for a little while. So she liked that. But uh, finally, I, I kept begging, and so she got me a guitar. We got matching uh, classical guitars. And you then know. here comes the sun. Look out. That's right. And that's <laughs> it. That's it. I finally figured out, here comes the sun, taught myself. 
and uh, it's meaningful to me that that yeah. was a finger picking song that you learned. Yeah, you know? well, that you know? that that's true. Yeah, because part of what Alan Corby did he, did, he was a folk guitarist, and I was taking these these lessons, and he would teach me, you know, folk folk songs. Right. So, so you were you were. But he sent me to Eric Darling, who who had taken Pete Seeger's place in the Weavers. Remember, I'm in New York City, so I'm like one degree away from all the '60s uh, folk players. Yeah, the Greenbrier Boys were on the go at the time. That was there was you know there was a banjo Bob Yellen in that right? band. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was a Bob Gene Yellen. Both those guys. Mark Horowitz was around. Bill Keith was all around the city often. Eric Weisberg was right there. Uh, Dueling banjos had hit. That had re- certainly re- reinvigorated my interest in it. And did yeah. you were you learning Fireball Mail? Were you learning like Scrug style? Well, this guy Eric Darling was more of a folk guy, so he was teaching me, you know, the simple these rolls that he did. They were three finger, but they were very folky, um, more oriented, and it wasn't like an Earl Scruggs trip at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and his own tunes, which I wasn't actually that into. I can say that now that he's passed. <laughs> but it was like, hey, I'm going to teach you some more of my tunes. Check it out. And I'd be like, mm, that's, this isn't what I'm here for. But eventually he, he was wise enough, or I guess uh, what, what, what the word is, he was, a, he was a good guy. And he said, I've taught you all I can teach you. It's time for you to go with somebody else. I'm gonna, you need to go and take lessons uh, from Mark Horowitz. He'll teach you the Keith style. I was like, the Keith style? It's like uh, sounded like sprockets. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't know what Keith was. Right? Did you it, know how to play Scrug style at this point? Well, it was. I'd learned. You know, I, I'm sure I had the Scruggs book that that I was loving, and I was listening to a lot of Scruggs. I was a big fan of the uh, Carnegie Hall album, which I love. You folks keep hollering for Martha White. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. I keep hearing some folks holler for Martha White. And I knew now, as I went further, I got to know some of the people who were hollering. Oh, really? Yeah, because that's New York City, right? That wasn't that far from my, my home. That was such a surprise to Lester, hey? That was such a beautiful moment to yeah. hear. To hear, I mean, he must have been so shocked to be in the, kind of the big city around these college kids. Well, it's funny. When I talked to Earl about it, he said, those darn kids were going to ruin, our, ruin our, our live recording. So we just had to do it. You know, that sort of thing. And <laughs> It's not a good Earl imitation, but... That's, it just that's so, all I remember from that concert, to be honest. Yeah. I think on it. Well, it made it great. Yeah, it like, did. what is this Martha White everyone's yelling? Well, what's, and then when they finally did it, it was awesome. But anyway, so, so I started taking lessons from this guy, Mark Horowitz, who um, lived in uh, Canarsie, Brooklyn. Like, it was a long, long um, train ride. And at that point, so I'm 15, 16, I guess 16, and I'm taking the train out there by myself. Um, uh, which is you know an hour plus riding on the train after school to get a lesson and then back. Yeah. So, so you he taught you melodic banjo. That's what he he taught me like. sprockets, right? Yeah, he taught yeah. me sprockets. So yeah, he taught me everything. He was a great teacher. He he. Um, That's funny, man. Yeah, he taught me. He knew every. He he was a, one of these encyclopedic, and he still is one of these encyclopedic type cats who could teach you how Alan Mundy played this, how Ben Eldridge played that, how. T- uh, and, um, Earl Scruggs played that. How Don Reno played that, and it was you know pretty much dead on. He was just one of those guys. And then at a certain point, uh, and, what, and what he would do is he would just like record a ton of stuff for me, like um, oh here's the Fireball Mail. Here's three minutes of me playing Fireball Mail. Well, here's three minutes of me playing Devil's Dream. Well, here's the Sally Ann. Well, here's Old Sockeye. Here's um, Follow the Leader. Everything he knew, he would put on a cassette, and I would take it home and I would. Tr- painstakingly transcribe it and I'd come back 
a week or two later, and um, and he would uh, and say, "What do you think?" And he'd say, "Well, yeah, you can do it that way, but this is how, here's how I did it," and and that was the lessons. Um, and they would and he, and he got, he got he got to like me. And at a certain point, I'm, I'm sure he's the one who told me I should go get a Tony Trishka record. Right. Were you able to jam at all, Bela? Did you have anyone to... Like- yeah, no, I was jamming. In fact, what I realized is before I even found um, um, Eric Darling, there was a folk club called the Hey Brother Coffee House on 106th Street, six blocks from my place. And I, every Friday or Saturday night it was, they'd, they'd do their... Um, it was in a community center. There'd be a folk hoot nanny or whatever yeah. and i saw a sign for it and i brought my banjo there one day and I, I i couldn't really play much of much of anything but what i would do is sit in the back and do this one this two rolls i knew the forward backward roll and the thumb in and out roll and i learned them both from pete seeger's book mm-hmm. no from pete wernick's book oh cool from bluegrass banjo and uh and i would go sit back there and roll along quietly with everybody try and catch the chords and that was the beginning and then gradually i started to find people and then one day, I was walking up there, and I saw some guys walking down the street with banjo cases and guitar cases, and, I was, and they saw me, and they said, hey, you know, you play bluegrass? And I said, yeah. And they took me in, they, and it was, a, it was a guy named Pat Flory, who was a guitar player who um, was going to architectural school at, uh, uh, I guess, NYU, uh, but but up on 120th, up, up there somewhere, and uh, and he had a place on 104th Street, and he was a real live bluegrass guy from New Orleans, of all places, and he had gathered around him three or four musicians that were New Yorkers that loved bluegrass that were so excited to have a guy like that, and he became the center of this little world, this little cell. So I had those guys, and they, they, they got me going. Pat once, once I showed up, Pat stopped playing banjo and started, uh, you know, kind of giving me the, that slot to be in in this sort of band, and you were okay, you were good, uh, good enough. I mean, I think he was he was just always a supporter of everybody around that really wanted to play the music and right. would try to help. You so know? you were jamming, you could you could jam, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I was in bands. You know, by the time I was in the second year of high school, I was always in a bluegrass band of some kind. There was people around. That's an interesting thing because I I. I've had this conversation with a bunch of different people about kind of like feeling sort of isolated in the music and then finding right. the person where it kind of makes sense. Well, I was isolated from my peer group of people my age. Right. They all thought I was crazy. Right. But so I these was, bands you were playing in in high school were not no, other there kids were No school. kids. No, it was, but they were all the remnants of that folk scene downtown. There was a place called Bowling Board where they would have jams. And I found a hammer, uh, not a hammer, but a regular dul- mountain dulcimer player who liked to sing and, and play, and, and I would play with her. And and sometimes I'd play guitar. You know, I had a Martin, and we we did little gigs, little folk club gigs. And but there was a whole scene of people that I and this great fiddle player named Marty Laster, a Jewish guy who was just a great fiddle player. Just loved to play, loved all the music, and we we became kind of pals. And we would be going in and out of groups together. Right. He's older than me. They're all older than me. So when when did you become aware of Tony? Because well, at some point, I mean, if you're in New York, eventually you're going to hear about Tony. But eventually, um, and I, I suspect it was Mark. Horowitz telling me you need to go out and get this record, which I got. I found it at uh, I think at Colony Records. That was on like 48th Street. That was where where I remember finding it. And um, wow, that it blew my my world open. Between 
between that and country cooking, that became my favorite stuff. And so now I'd come back to Mark and say, can you teach me this? Can you teach me that? And so he would say, yeah, I can do that. And because and so, he, he could play that. So he could figure out anything. And so he'd figure it, figure it out. And I'd show up. And as I got in, he'd be like getting the last notes ready for me. And, and this went on for a few months. And finally, one day he said he was just getting exhausted by me trying, trying to learn Tony's stuff, which was just a bit beyond him. Um, and, and by the next lesson you know, three things or whatever. And so one day he said, look, here's Tony's number. He looks in the Bronx. He lives in the Bronx. Just call him up, you know. So I called up Tony. Would you give me a lesson? Yeah, I'm very busy, but I'll try. Yeah, we'll try and find a time. And, I, and that began, you know, my third my third teacher. Paint me in another one of those visual pictures. What, when I say your first lesson with Tony Trishka, what pops into your head? I just remember this, uh, you know, it was up in the Bronx. So I had to take the train up there and find it. So that was part of the rite of passage. And he lived there with the other musician. I can't remember whether it was Roger uh, Roger Mason or bass player that played in, in his band Breakfast Special. And it was just a, a little New York apartment. And through the window, there was, uh, you looked out the window and you saw a brick wall. And I remember uh, Roger and Tony saying, yeah, we spend a lot of time staring out that window. <laughs> <laughs> and just sitting on the couch, and there was a cassette deck, you know, some speakers, and we'd listen to a couple things, and we'd play, and, uh, and we'd jam out and go wild, and, and I'd tape it all. And then I'd go home uh, and, uh, and try and figure it out, like you, what he was doing were from you, my tapes. Were you interested in playing, Tony and I came up with a good term, bluegrass adjacent? Were you interested in playing bluegrass adjacent music? Yes. At this point, before yeah. you talked to Tony, were you interested in playing more than Sally Ann? Yeah, I, I was totally into um, exploring and jazz and all the different possibilities. And Tony was pointing the way, you know, but Bill Keith was too. And really everybody was, but you just had to really want want that. Did but you also, know about Bobby Thompson? Were you aware? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I knew about everybody. I knew about it. I thought I knew about everybody. Right. <laughs> but uh, I, I knew quite a lot about who was doing what and what was going on. I was all the way in. <clears throat> but um, you know, nobody really was doing the thing that I that I saw Chick Corea and uh, Returned Forever doing when I went to see them when I was seventeen. And it and it wasn't Chick, although he was my favorite musician on stage. It was uh, um, Stanley Clark and Al Demiola. I saw you with Stanley Clark in Montreal. Um, I was seventeen. Yeah. That was a that was a cool one, man. That, yeah, that was a great show. You and Stanley and um, and John Luke, John Luke Ponty, John Luke Ponty. Yeah, at the Montreal Jazz Festival. It was one of my. That was maybe a a, a Tony Trishka moment for Wait, me. Wait, d- did Stanley show up? Yeah, that wasn't. The, he didn't show up to Toronto. Oh, he. Uh, I know. I know all about this yeah, concert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I ran into you. Did I ever told you the story? I ran into you earlier that day, and uh, in the uh, mall. And uh, I was gone to buy socks or something like that. In the, in the, and I said, I said the dumbest thing. I think about it a lot. I said, hey, Bela, nice to meet you. He said, hey, man, it's nice to meet you, too. I said, is it going to be a good show tonight? And he said, oh, no, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you messed up. And I was like, oh, what a dumb question. That's so stupid. And then later that night, you, when you came out to do the solo banjo portion of the show, you said, this goes out to that young banjo player. I, I really did. All. You really did. Oh, I like myself more in retrospect. <laughs> and my brother put his arm, my brother went with me, he put his arm around me. It was very, oh. very, very meaningful moment for me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's nice to hear. Yeah, it was, it was cool. So, nice so hold hear. on. So enough about me. So you, so you're taking lessons with Tony. And- well, the, 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 the big thing about those guys is that they, 
were the shredders of the band. You know, they were like they would go up and down every inch of their necks of the of that electric bass and and, and acoustic bass. Yeah, Stanley and and uh, and Al Demiola, of course, and lightning speeds. And they, you know, it was like checking every box. Up, oh, I missed that fret. Got to go back there. Up, going over here. Up, going up, top, up, top fret. Bottom fret. Behind the nut, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like uh, you know Joe, Joe Satriani in, in, in our minds now, or Eddie Van Halen. You know, it, it was no, it was those guys. It was um, Al Demiola and Stanley Clark being the gods they were of that time of that particular kind of music that they were so good at. And I just thought to myself, all those notes have got to be on the banjo somewhere. Why? Why not? Respectfully, in your mm-hmm. house, why not say, "Oh, well, they're playing it on the guitar. I'll play it on guitar." I didn't like the guitar like I liked the banjo. It just didn't turn me on. It, I was interested in the guitar, but I loved the banjo. Wow. It, it was a thing. And I was like, well, why can't I play it on the banjo? And it seemed like I had taken on some sort of um, civil rights for the banjo kind of point of view, even <laughs> yeah. pretty early. It was like when people would like laugh at me and do the hee-haw arms and start dancing around when they saw me with the banjo, that just got my back up. You know, it seemed like um, it wasn't fair. What people were the way people were dogging the banjo. Yeah, what, what were they really saying? What were they saying? No, no, hold on. But like, yeah, when they were saying yeehaw and all that stuff. Yeah, what were they really saying? They were saying oh, this is a poor instrument. This is a. They were know, making. You know? um, I think they were connecting it to a. Uh, a, a well, okay, the the images of um, uh, in the Deliverance movie yeah. of uh, you know the, the kid. Um, um, guys getting sodomized by these guys and connecting it to the banjo. Yeah, paddle faster, I hear banjo music. Right, the white thing. trash, um, the, the evils, uh, white southern backwoods, you know, um, right. sickos, that kind of thing. And then even, uh, you know, um, the Beverly Hillbillies was a little bit cooler because the truth was they were actually smarter than than the the L.A. banker with the, they well, you know the result of every story was that Jed was actually smarter but he was a savant it wasn't like he knew he was smarter well maybe he did I don't know but that wasn't as bad to me but then he, the other one was hee haw I mean hee haw was always these dumb guys in a field and I just thought that music was so cool and I just I just didn't like that and I wasn't from there and also I was looking for a way to to um, to be a part of this thing and I, I wasn't a southerner so I. I don't know. All these things kind of got my back up, and I, I was fighting for the honor of the banjo on a regular basis. What's What's interesting to me then is that after you play with Tony and, you, and the Tasty Licks kind of happens, something surprising to me is that you end up going south. You end up going. I mean, for someone who was trying to say, "Hey, I want to be able to play Chicory on this thing. I want to be able to play yeah. Demiol on this thing," you end up going to Lexington, I guess. That's right. You end up going to see JD. That's right. And part of it was uh, I've always been an observer. And I observed um, in the Bluegrass Unlimited uh, every week, every every month, there was uh, there was uh, a letter f- uh, to the editor from somebody um, bemoaning the fact that bluegrass was being ruined by the Yankees, such as Tony Trishka, uh, Andy Statman, all of these guys that were doing new things with the music were um, were being, um, you know, they hated it. They hated it, and and I saw that, and I went, well, I don't want people to hate what I do, you know. I wonder if there's a way I could get uh, get them to like me, you know. And I thought, well, maybe maybe there's something. I started to really tune into the music, and I realized there was a difference between the north, the way the northerners were playing it, and the way the southerners southerners were playing it. And I was kind of looking for a way to be able to do both. Or at the first, the first thing you do is when you're, um, well, here's the thing. Um, 
I could play so much like Tony Trishka, it was getting to be a problem. So there was a, I was, this one party I was at, and Tony and I were playing, and somebody came up to me and a, afterwards and said, man, you are so good. You and Tony were playing. I had my eyes closed. I didn't know who was who. And I was so excited and proud of that. But until uh, a while later, I started thinking about it. Wait a second. He actually is Tony Trishka, but I'm not. Mm. And so I was looking for ways to differentiate myself from Tony. And one way was to like go deep into the Southern thing, which, you know, now Tony is quite a uh, adept traditionalist, but he, he wasn't really presenting that way back then. He was the guy that was changing the music that was doing all this new stuff. And so I decided, well, what if I could get get down there and really get into that stuff? And I'd had this awakening in Tasty Licks when Pat Enright joined the band, who just, uh, he was a uh, uh, he was ended up singing in Nashville Bluegrass Band for many years. Just a wonderful traditional singer. And he awakened my um, appreciation of traditional bluegrass in a way that I, uh, I hadn't expected. Because I was really going down the Tony Trishka, the modern path. This guy comes along, and he's so good at traditional bluegrass that all of a sudden I took it much more seriously. So a combination of these multiple things going on, and I, and I had a chance to go down south and join a band with two guys that had played with J.D. Crow. Was that Spectrum? Spectrum. Yeah. And the thing about it is that there was a, people were talking about Tony Rice and Crow and this new, this feel, this rhythm, rhythmic feel. And they weren't talking about that with the Yankee players. You know, they weren't talking about that with, uh, with us, us Northerners. So I wanted to be part of that. And also around this time, banjo was getting pulled out of the music. David Grisman had the quintet. He had, uh, no banjo. Tony Rice was do, had just done Manzanita. Manzanita had no banjo. No right? banjo. Yeah. So things were starting to go that way, and I was like, man, you know, I, I wanted to be the guy. I wanted to play with those guys. I wanted to be the banjo player on those and I always thought maybe part of the reason was because Crow couldn't really play that stuff. He's the greatest ever, you know, or one of the greatest ever. But he couldn't really go where Tony Rice was going mm-hmm. and, and uh, where Jerry Douglas wanted to go and even where, where Ricky wanted to go. So I thought maybe there was an opportunity for somebody who had, you know, a different technical point of view, you know, a different... Uh, personality on the banjo to fit into that world like all this stuff you learned from tony that was you know kind of mind-blowing and abstract could actually be beneficial in what these guys in the south were doing i was thinking that yeah. it occurred that to me maybe yeah. i could be the guy to go play with those guys since but i would have to be like i would have to be as good as crow somehow right. and then this opportunity came to um to go be in a band with two guys that had played with him and i thought well that's as close as i can get because i can't be in crow's band because he's a crow <laughs> he's already <laughs> he's a crow the one guy you can't he's the can't, one guy you can't yeah can't get that gig no so i got in this band with two guys and i thought maybe his timing would rub off on me you know but what happened what i didn't count on but which which really helped a lot was just that living in that community of people between the louisville and lexington and even cincinnati those three cities there was just a hotbed of, of bluegrass players and worshipers of that particular school of playing. That, you know, there's a whole world of people I didn't know. And those were the people. I didn't actually end up with a lot of time directly with Crow. Like he never took me on as a student or anything like that. I just I was I was so scared of him. But uh but he'd come out and hear me play and I went to hear him play all the time at the at the Newtown Pike uh Holiday Inn. 
I mean, there's no place I, I, else I would be. And I watched and I watched and I watched and I watched. I observed yeah. and I observed and I studied the tapes and I learned solos from Earl Scruggs' radio shows. That was my period for that. And, and my pal in that endeavor was Steve Cooley, a, a, a great uh, Louisville banjo player. We spent a lot of time together Is he still with those us? tapes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, still playing? Mm-hmm. Real yeah. good player, real yeah. neat guy. Well, that, isn't that interesting? I mean, I, I, I feel like that part of your life I, is sometimes overlooked in kind of the story of, of Bela and, and, and the Flectones and all that. I've always been a big fan. I've always been really curious about how, how transformative it was, yes, to work with Tony, but to sit down and watch J.D. Crow. Yeah, it was great. And, it, and I thought, man, if I could play with that kind of timing... And then I tried to drop the northern sort of bounce that had crept into northern banjo playing um, through the influence of Alan Shelton, who is not a northerner, but by just the sheer love of of his playing, it became such a, a way to play. That there was always this very exaggerated bounce, and and I noticed that Crow played with almost no bounce, and I and I noticed that it swung harder. made that thing that where the music just started to make you move in a whole different way and I, and I and I got uh, really into the metronome and and studying the, the way timing worked and it, it helped but the neat thing is that I still don't sound like any of those guys I don't yeah. sound like a, a traditional guy but my timing and my uh, rhythmic focus um, sharpened quite a lot from that and I learned a lot of lessons from it that I then applied to everything else that I was doing and when I finally did get to play with Tony Rice finally I could lock in with him like nobody's business, and he liked it. Yeah. Did you have any aspirations of being um, like a more traditional guy? Did you have any aspirations of playing with Monroe or anything? I auditioned for him once, and uh, and if he had taken me, I would have I would have done it in a minute, and I, I would have loved it. Can you tell me about the audition? Yeah, it wasn't anything special. He was at we were at the I guess it's now it's called uh, when, well it was it had so many different names. This festival uh, it was Berkshire Mountains Bluegrass Festival at the time, and it was Wintergrass. Uh, Eagle, um, whatever it is, you know, upstate New York, the great festival up there, Winterhawk. Yeah. And, um, and somebody got me a, an audition and I don't think he needed a banjo player. It was just a thing to do. If you could get an audition with Monroe, maybe he'd know you, maybe he'd someday he'd need somebody and give you a call. So I went into, onto his bus and I sat and I played some tunes for him. And, um, he said, uh, you got to get your hands together. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, uh, you just you've got to get them together, you know. So I I think the basic idea was that I wasn't um, integrating my two hands properly. Right. When and you and I were talking a little bit earlier about kind of meeting the people that oh I finally met some people like minded. When you met like Sam and Tony and, and Jerry and these guys, was it yeah. like oh finally? Uh yeah. Jerry was the one that was the most open to me in the beginning. He was he was the warmest and friendliest right away. And uh, Sam had played on a record for me. So he did a lot of stuff as a session player. He'd kind of play for anybody. So I mean, sure he was going to be nice to you while he was there. You didn't never really knew for sure where where you stood. But um, but he he's just such a great guy and and, and wonderful to people when when they're there together. But I didn't know what he really thought. But he so he did this project for me. And uh, and I got Jerry to play on it too. It was called Crossing the Tracks. It was my first album. Oh, I, I, I have. The, I thought you were in Newgrass then. No, 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 no. But that I, that certainly led to it. And I, I have to say, I used making records from then on as a way to get to the next rung. So if I if I um, 
I asked Sam to play, you know, hoping I'd get to play with him someday, and that's how he found out about me. And I got Jerry to play on that record, same thing. And everybody else on it were people I already was playing with a good bit and already, so that didn't really achieve anything, but it it was something that Rounder suggested to me. I said, well, can I just record with the Tasty Licks? And they said, you can, but why don't you think, of, think a little bit bigger? Like, right. I was so scared of everybody. But you were obviously getting a bit of a name if they wanted you to make a record. Yeah, but they were waiting for I mean, me to, I don't know, get some backbone or be ready. And right. I'm glad I waited that long. It's a better record than it would have been if I had to. I was a little irritated because, you know, Mark O'Connor had made his record at 12, and, and I, was, I thought I was a hot shot, and I, I wanted to do it before I was 20 at least. It was a silly egotism right but you know i was 19 so (laughs) so so is by having sam on crossing the tracks is that how you end up in newgrass well uh, that's the short you know essentially um but eventually when i moved to kentucky then they weren't very far away right because it was who was their bench player was it um, courtney johnson courtney johnson yeah was he already they were uh they were still going strong you know so um they they were playing a lot of gigs with leon russell at that time and sort of disagreeing about it within the band um, about how long they should stay, and at a certain point, Courtney and Curtis, the guitar player and and uh, and uh, banjo player, decided to quit the band in the middle of the tour, and um, they were out with Leon and Sam and John. Just didn't feel like that was correct thing to do. They felt they owed to Leon to finish the tour before they kind of wanted to go back to being Newgrass Revival too. But uh, I don't know; it just wasn't. Right. They weren't happy. So, do you fill in on that? Is that what? Is that what the no. call is? No. So, what happens is they quit the band. And uh, when they come home, they they come back. Uh, when, when Sam and John come home, Curtis and Courtney come back as if nothing ever happened. And Sam and John say, "No, you you can't come back. You quit." You know, and they were they were mad. And so at that point, Sam decided. I guess Sam and John decided to put together a new band. They started looking around for people, and I had been doing a few things. I think I made uh, when I made. Uh, Natural Bridge, about mm-hmm. half of that was a project that I did with Jerry Douglas. We, we recorded to our, both our albums at the same time in the same studio with the same musicians pretty much. And Sam was on some of that stuff. And he was appreciating how I was playing and was reminded, I guess, um, that about that. So, Because um, I always loved Sam's fiddling. So I had, think I had Jimmy Goudreau playing mandolin and Sam was playing fiddle. And we were doing it all live and... And Sam was watching me crash and burn trying to play solos that I couldn't get through. But he liked the spirit that I would always go down in flames fighting for it. And he liked that, which was was neat. So he found this guitar player out in uh, Colorado uh, who was a California guy named Pat Flynn and me. And he reconstituted. And I had to leave Spectrum, which was very hard to do. I bet. Because we started the band together. And... Uh, it wasn't going that well, but yeah. it was it was it was okay. But it, for me, this was joining the big leagues, and it really was because when I did that, I got to we got to move. My only thing was, if we're going to do it, can it please be in Nashville? Because I Jerry was my new best friend. I was he was my hero, and he was t- he was taking me, and he's the one who called me and said, "Hey, man, big deal happens. Uh, Curtis, Curtis and Courtney left Newgrass Revival. You need to think about this." I said, "What well, does this got to do with me?" You know? Yeah. So. Uh, 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 Apparently, I auditioned them, a cocky little snurd that I was. I I wasn't sure because I'd been working so hard on getting the crow timing and trying to apply that to Spectrum. And I was a little nervous that that maybe I wouldn't be able to play that way with Sam and John. So I said, could we get together and play? You know, I really would like like it if we got together. And And did you play their tunes? Did you play? Yeah, I went, I just went, I just drove down to Nashville. It was a few, three hour drive, three and a half hour drive. And we sat, uh, and ironically, it's like 
right across the street where I take my son to school now, you know, 40 years later or whatever. But at any rate, um, um, it was a joy to play with these guys. I knew it was going to be great, but I just, I just, I just didn't know. I didn't know how to, to leave this band without at least going and, you know, seeing if it sucked. I'd like to know it's going to suck. Something's going to be weird about it. Yeah. You know, before you were, I leave this group of people, Mark Sh- cautious. You know? Yeah. Mark yeah. Schatz was, we'd moved together from, uh, to Kentucky and in his sob and, and, you know, people were depending on me for this band, you know? So, but as I said, it was kind of, it wasn't really going, um, I guess I just wasn't in love with the band either, but it was very hard to leave. So eventually I told them and gave them a long notice and then moved down, down here to, to play with Sam. When you were in Newgrass, did it feel like, oh, this is, this is everything I've ever hoped for. This is, yeah, it. it was, it was one of the first, uh, the only thing before that had been, um, recording the, the half of, um, natural bridge. The other half that wasn't in Nashville was done with the David Grisman Quintet in California. And that was actually the best thing I'd ever done to that, to, up to that time. It was, uh, it was the feel. I was trying to get Tony Rice and, and Grisman to record together again, and they had agreed to. They had had an acrimonious split. And there, um, and I had. They were going to get together and record on six tracks for me. And the night before I was supposed to fly, I got a call from Marion Layton. Uh, it's, Tony's canceled. He's just not ready to. Re- it's like, oh man. So then, at the last minute, Mark O'Connor, who had, who was now in the David Grisman Quintet playing guitar, yeah, great guitar player too, unbelievable yeah, guitar yeah, player. Yeah. I begged him to switch, but he was so excited about playing fiddle on this record because he wasn't getting to play any fiddle. And uh, so, but he reluctantly switched to guitar and did some double fiddling, and Daryl got got on the record. And and it, but anyway, the feel of this music with Mark Schatz and, and me, and um, Mark being a, a real studied fan of Tony Rice rhythm guitar playing, and and locking in with David Grisman, who was also just an unbelievable player at rhythm, you know, and uh, all the things he's so good at. And Mike Marshall was a part of that. He was on some tracks too. So we had the double mandolins and we had double fiddles and we, but the feel of the music was something I had never experienced up to that, to that date. It was so good. So that was, that was the high watermark for me up until then. And then the Newgrass thing, when we started out, we were just doing the existing material, but it was badass. I mean, it was really, I remember the first rehearsal, we were just, I had gotten back from Japan. The last one, I wasn't quite done with uh, Spectrum, but I think I, um, I got back. And I mean, maybe that was it. Maybe I was done and, and I had to go straight from the, the flight, the, that long flight from Japan to Evansville, Indiana, where our first rehearsal was going to be. I had never met Pat Flynn. And they were like, now go to sleep and we'll, tomorrow we'll start. I was like, what are you kidding me? Let's get them out. Come on. <laughs> and we got out the instruments and we started playing. And, and it was just glorious. It was, you know, everybody just totally awesome wonderful individual players and were there dreams of stardom were there dreams of being the biggest band in the world i don't know if that was on the cards but i thought i'm i'm I, th- I just knew we we all knew we had something really i mean e- immediately we knew we had an awesome band well, I'm on my way to a brighter day. maybe i will see you there but right now mama gotta get in the wind again have you seen the sam doc yet yeah 
I guess that, that was that was a thing. Like I've just been, a, I was a fan of Newgrass Revival when I became a fan of yours, and I, I, I kind of got into Newgrass Revival by finding out about and listening to Drive and listening to all these records and going, oh well, did you know while he was doing that, he was also in this band and, right. and getting into that. This is hard for me to talk about, but I didn't know until the reason I asked about did you want to be the biggest band in the world because I didn't know until I watched the doc that there was this sort of are they going to make it bet happening in Nashville about the Newgrass revival. Yeah, there was. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And then, and a few things had happened, like Ricky Skaggs had come along. He was a new traditionalist, in quotes. Yeah. He'd been successful with a, with a bluegrass element. Um, but everybody else... Um, uh, and there was a couple of re- recording. I played on some re- records that went number one that were, as a session player in the band that was on. And every once in a while, someone would hire me to play on something. It would go to number one. But yet... There was a, a kiss of death feeling about the banjo in country music at that time. You think it, you, it was the banjo? Oh, yeah, and it was like, you've got to have drums, and, and Baylor should play guitar. And there was that push of sort of reducing the banjo's role. It was, although some of the best stuff that we did the best with, like uh, Can't Stop Now, um, did have banjo front and center. There was a sense of, like, it being in the band rather than being the main thing. And so I felt, and the songs were getting shorter and we were trying to, you know, make things work uh, for the pop country of the time. And um, it just meant, it wasn't what I joined Newgrass Revival for. Yeah. It was, it was, but it was still great. I mean, I I love those guys and I love the music we made, but it wasn't, I mean, I was writing nonstop and very, very, very little of it was getting it into the band. And it began to be an immature uh, uh, narcissist (laughs) <laughs> the stuff that I was bringing to the band was getting regularly getting nominated for Grammys, and none of our other stuff was. <clears throat> so I was frustrated, and I wanted to go fight the fight the good fight, you know, for progressive music of some kind. And and um, they they were all o- a little bit older. We were still riding around in a van, and wanted to be in a bus. And and um, I was worried we were going to have a hit doing something we all hated and, and or just weren't that into and then have to do that for the rest of our life, as, as I was seeing some other bands have to do at that point. Um, but also, you know, if you're a singer, it's a little different experience to, to try and make it because it's you're still you singing. But as a banjo player, I mean, I was getting to play more on other people's sessions, and they right. were going to number one, right. and we were, and we weren't, and I was, and I was feeling reduced, and I was feeling like the problem, and at the same time, you felt like the problem, yeah, because I felt like if they got a drummer and got rid of me and got another great vocalist, maybe they could just, you know, fit in just fine. But I don't really think it would have gone that way because I don't think we had the right combination of the kind of vocal. We had great singing, but it wasn't the kind of vocal that was going to make it on country radio at that time. I don't think. Was that a hard? Was that a hard phone call to tell Sam? Um, well, it was a gradual thing, and he came to see me do um, the first Flectones thing, which was the just PBS a Bela Fleck and thing, Friends right? thing. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. It was. Uh, a year and a half before I quit the that, band. Was that where you did the Mac thing, or was that before mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I did a. I, it was uh, Newgrass had already done this show twice. I think it was called Lonesome Pine Special, so they couldn't do that anymore. And uh, the guy, guy named Dick Van Cleek up in Louisville, uh, um, had put together this TV show, and he said, um, "Come put together like a." a a show, do something you want to do, do a um, avant-garde band show. He knew who knew who I was and what I was trying to be. So you could see it in Newgrass, and so he gave me just a, f- a f- open uh, hour to do anything I wanted. Um, he said, "You can, you know, see if you can get, um, you know, one of the Marsalis brothers to come play with you. I get the greatest jazz players to come down. Do, do something. What do you want to do?" So, well, I've got this string quartet I wrote with Edgar, 
we could do that. And uh, I'm doing this stuff with the computer and, and then I could put together a jazz band. Okay, great. Go, go do it. Go find them. And I started thinking about it. And as I, and just around then, um, I was really intrigued by, I had, I had met Victor. I had met Howard. And I was thinking that wouldn't be more interesting than me with a ba- like a backup, you know, rhythm section. I'd even tried that before. It hadn't worked that well. I wasn't good. I wasn't a good enough jazz player, right. but my tunes, you know, with, with Victor and, um, and Howard, you know, and maybe a, a drummer, maybe that would be a much cooler thing to do with the show. So I put these guys together, and and um, and that was the plan. And Sam happened to come to the show, and he said when he saw us come on stage, he knew I was going to leave the band. But I didn't know I was going to leave the band at that point. Really? At that point, I was just thrilled to, to be playing my own music and having people. People went crazy for that first show. Yeah. So, um, so that was August, and then around the end of the year, um, I had we had some time off from Newgrass, and I did we did four little club dates to see if maybe there was enough to put together an album, and uh, and that went really well. And then we made this record. I guess maybe it was I don't know April or something, uh, March or April, and around the same time, Newgrass was trying to get uh, a song called Colin Baton Rouge off the ground. That ended up being a big hit for Garth, for Garth Brooks, Brooks a few years later, yeah. Such a strange combination of a woman and we had to make this video, and I was like, oh no, I, I booked the, the session I, with my own money. I was recording the Flectones, and, um, and it was the last day, and I said, well, I'll, I'll just have to take the, you know, get the first morning flight and meet you guys out in the Mojave Desert to shoot this video. And so anyway, we, we recorded, it, you know, it was just one of those all in, you know, I think we recorded, I don't remember how many days, six, seven days, really intently working on this music, really getting it good. And then we, and I, and then we, and then I was making the rough mix till four or five in the morning and I went straight to the airport and my eyes were so bleary. And, I, and instead of going to sleep, I put it on, I listened to it on the flight to California and I went, oh man. I'm gonna have to leave the band, you know. That's when that's when it hit me because listening back to that first record, the rough the roughs of it, and realizing how unique this thing was, it was like I had finally found the thing I was really looking for. But it took me a while to to get up the nerve, and then um, so then then I we shot the and you can see this video that was shot a few hours after that if you ever if you look up Newgrass Revival calling Baton Rouge, you see I'm wearing sunglasses, I'm wearing these uh, Ray Bands because my eyes were so bleary, I'd been up all night and we're still standing around in the desert shooting these <laughs> this uh, this song, which was a cool song. Yeah. I had a lot to do with the arrangement of that song. Yeah. I, I loved that song, but. Yeah. But yeah, we never could get it. I think it was top forty, but just barely. It might have even been forty three, or maybe it was twenty. I don't know. It, it it was in there, but it, it was wasn't. your biggest hit, I think. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, but it never got past past that, and it it wasn't really happening. I'm surprised how. Maybe I shouldn't be, but I was surprised when I heard about all this and I learned the story of you know the Flectones and and, and Newgrass Revival that I. Um, that you and Sam stayed buddies. Like when I when I would listen to the Tales from the Acoustic Planet records, there was there was Sam on them. So it obviously wasn't that acrimonious. Well, the thing that happened when I quit, um, and I gave the band uh, like maybe seven, eight. I think I quit in maybe May, um, but stayed until the end of the year. And our final gig was like opening up for the Grateful Dead on, at the Oakland Coliseum. So it was like we went out big. 
Got the right? shirt on. Yep. Yeah. That's right. 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 But um, and all the things that we you know we wanted to have happen were just not happening for us. Why can't we play with Bruce Hornsby? He was hot right then. Oh, that'll never happen. They, you, you know, you have banjos and fiddles. That will never happen. You know, why can't we play with the Grateful Dead? Oh, that will never happen. You know, they started to happen right there in that last year of Newgrass. Uh, um, Hornsby played at Telluride, and he invited us all. He was a big fan. He invited us all to sit in with the range, and Newgrass Revival got on stage and played with him, and he loved it. And then he started asking me to do things with him. I was like, why couldn't we? Why didn't we have to be stuck in the country music ghetto where we didn't belong? Like, we were just five years too early for a jam band right. world. It just was not quite happening. We would have been great in that world. You would have been yonder. You would have been these kind of like yeah. jam grass things. Yeah, I and mean, all those guys that kind of copied us and then took it in their own and uh, you know, I would say integrated us, not copied yeah. us. Nobody tried to be us, but, uh, but we were just a little too early. You, right? Highly, I mean, highly. So, I mean, uh, to be honest, um, Sam and and most of all uh, was the big, the big Kahuna of that world. I, th- I think he's the father of jam band music. You know, and he, uh, well, you know, so is Jerry Garcia. But at any rate, all the people told us that we could, that this could never happen for us. But it really could have. It was, it was just a few years down the pike. But anyway, when I said I'm, I'm going to leave, Sam said, um, well, I'm quitting too. Because he had had it with, with uh, one of the guys in the band. He was really struggling with a long, tough relationship. And he, he just was ready to move on. And he just sort of punted and joined Emmylou Harris's band. And it ended up being such a sweet relationship. And he stayed for 11 years with Emmylou Harris she not still doing gets his own up with music him sometimes I, I, I saw I think I saw a video of just maybe last year the year before them doing the walls of time you know they, they, they're still buds you know absolutely it was a beautiful relationship she, uh, he made her world bigger and she made his world bigger and it was a beautiful thing but it was you know it wasn't doing his own music which eventually he came back to but I think he lost some ground there by sort of stepping out of the improvising and the bluegrass uh, scene um, in terms of when he started his own band it, it was it took a while to get it get it up and running um, and and David Grisman used to always say to him it should be Sam Bush and the Newgrass Revival you're missing you, you, you know when Newgrass is gone the people won't know you know where to find you they won't they won't realize but which is part of why I call Bela Fleck and the Flecktones Bela Fleck and the oh, Flecktones so? yeah because of David Grisman uh, all him always nudging Sam well that was my question my question was what did you like? Did you learn something from maybe the issues around Newgrass or just totally. your experience with Newgrass that you you, you fixed? Because you also you also strike me as a very business minded person, someone who understands the music business very well. Um, what lessons did you learn from Newgrass that you applied to Bell Fleck and the Flecktones? Okay, so Newgrass built up from 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 nothing and were the underdogs, and nobody thought it was gonna they were gonna make it. They're just scruffy; it wasn't gonna happen, you know. But they did. You know, they had a great career long before I joined the band, and then they had a great career after I joined the band. So I, I, I almost think of Newgrass as being, you know, not about me. It's just a long trajectory of guys sticking to their guns with a, a unique vision. And so what what I took from that was that um, if I was going to leave Newgrass, like the best gig, at this point it was the best gig you could possibly have for someone like me, and start over from scratch with a bunch of guys that nobody's ever heard of, um, I needed to make a commitment to be a band leader from now on because I wasn't going to be able to keep these guys. And sure enough, you know, three years later, Howard did leave. And I, what I was, I didn't realize uh, Victor and, and Future Man would stay with me this whole ride. This, you know, 30 years later, they're still, we've got each other's backs, you know. And when we go out and do the Flectones, they're, all, they're always there. But um, that's part of why I named it. Because, like, if I named it, you know, Weather Report or whatever, and three years later, everybody decided they didn't want to do it, then I would be 
I would have nothing. But if I called it Bela Fleck and the Flecktones and somebody needed to leave, I could replace them and the band could keep going and I would be leaving Newgrass, the security of Newgrass, for a new career as a band leader. But I also thought it was going to take 10 years for it to become a, a, a solvent situation because the music was simply so esoteric. Mm-hmm. But that was the, the big surprise, is that it was embraced and it, was, uh, it became a huge success. And very soon we were getting all the gigs that Newgrass wasn't getting. You know, um, you know, we were playing at Carnegie Hall with Take Six. We were out on tour playing with rock bands, you know, with Chicago, you know, aging rock bands, sure, but... But uh, we were out had, of the bluegrass ghetto. Completely. And you had these sort of hippie jam band people coming to see you. you Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we were still on the front end of jam music. I didn't really want to identify with the jam scene at that point because I really wanted to be a jazzer. I wanted to be accepted by that world. Um, but And I, I also had taken all of the bluegrass influence that was overt out of the music at that point. I didn't want anything bluegrassy or country in the music. It took me a couple of records to come to my senses and stick that front and center as a strong part of the music. Well, I've always wondered this is, and I actually, I've spoken to a couple of mutual friends of ours and and I brought up this question to them and they they wondered the same thing, is in the midst of, say, the Stanley Clark show with Jean-Luc Ponty and you, which I saw, I remember the Live from the Quick, DVD being very very important to me when I was when I was a kid. In the midst of all of both these shows, there is always this moment where you sit down at the banjo by yourself, unamply, you know, not not the electric banjo, and you play improvised music. You play some classical music. You play all these things. Generally, if I'm not mistaken, always ended with the ballad of Jake Clampett. my routine for a long long time why well because that was that was well for one thing now i was becoming the distributor of bluegrass to people that didn't listen to bluegrass yeah so i would particularly do it if i went to uh, another country like if i was in japan or korea or if i was in europe i would i would always make sure and play some bluegrass because they weren't getting it and i thought it would be exotic to them just like if i was playing classical music for a bluegrass audience they might be knocked out because they would wouldn't expect to hear it or they might hate it yeah but um but also it was the thing that got me playing in the first place i think that particular piece you understood the expectations of the audience too though well to my surprise people went crazy for the bluegrass and i had learned that if i i could play anything i wanted on that solo but if i ended with beverly hillbillies i was going to win just like I knew the Flectones could do almost anything because at the end of the show, Victor was going to spin his bass and do acrobatics right. and go crazy. And the audience was going to go leap to their feet and we were going to win. So it gave us a lot of freedom you know, to do a lot of esoteric stuff because we had such a home run at the end. And, and f- at, at that time, the Beverly Hillbillies was that too. Um, that was the way to, 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 to lock it down because not only did it, um, was it familiar and exciting and fast. It also showed uh, how different everything else I had been doing up until then was. But, but it, not everyone would do that, Bella, because I know I know musicians. I'm sure you know musicians like this too, who would say, "Hey, listen, this is what I do. Right, this is what I do. Take it." You know, I know. With I used to think about my band. My band could be. Uh, a band that plays traditional fiddle tunes and sings on accompanied ballads, but it became important to us. I have a couple of dance songs in there, a couple of song, a couple of sing along songs to get everybody going. You know, I think even when the Punch Brothers play, they might play some weirdly esoteric kind of string quintet stuff, right? And then they'll probably play My Cabin in Carolina, The Little Girl of Mine in Tennessee, right? And like, I, I it, we all know people who wouldn't do that. We all know people who would say, "Here, here's what I'm doing. Right. I'm not going to play so what here right now." Right. I feel like you understood the. 
in respect to the audience. Part of it was a, sh- uh, you know, a showbiz thing, you know, um, like, like it was just a great, um, contrast to everything else that was being done. Part of it was homage to, to it. And then also part of it was, um, um, again, ego, like feeling like I was a participant in that music. And one of the people like the drive album was a big deal album in that world. And I was in Newgrass revival in the top band in that music for years and years that I wasn't really just this, uh, jazz avant-garde player, but actually I was very, very much a part of that world. And I didn't want that to be just, um, you know, sliced away and forgotten, even for myself. That was a big piece of who I was. So I guess part of that was me hanging on to that. But um, yeah, and feeling like, well, I, if, you know, if I'm in, if I'm supposed to be one of the really good guys in that world, which um, I guess I thought I was, um, after all the work I'd put put into it, um, then, and I was in Europe, then I ought to play them some of that too. But it, gradually it, it, uh, it worked its way into the music. Uh, and more and more in the Flectones, like we started doing the Yeehaw Factor. You know, we started doing a couple of other things um, um, that had a real bluegrass, overtly bluegrass lean. And and I was starting to discover that the stigma, um, the, the white Southern stereotype um, was sort of fading away. It had been a long time since some of those. I mean, it was still there, but it was very gradually fading away. And um, and it wasn't a negative, and people were getting starting to get more curious about it. I'm talking about twenty years in to flectones at that kind of time, and then doing f- something like big country was actually just a big, warm, you know, sloppy kiss. Not 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 something that had any negative con- connotations to it at all. the changes now because now i saw you and abby play in um toronto uh, i don't know when it was april may how are you finding the audiences now i feel like people were really open and ready and they they, they didn't need you to play fireball mail you know but if you wanted to that would be great too no i mean that's one of the great things that happens from being around a long time they'll come to see what you want to do rather than you having to do that like i think if you get in that trap of playing what they want you to do then you get it you're stuck because because you're always going to be playing the same songs for your whole career and you're never going to be able to grow but if you build a career that's based on change that oh it's like the home shopping network you better buy it now because it's not going to be for sale again (laughs) it's going to come off and you're not going to be able to get it if you want to see what what um that artist is doing now um you know you better go see it um and hopefully, if people like enough of the things that I do, then I develop a trust with them. And they're going to come and give me a shot. But I've discovered, you know, in more recent years, it's harder and harder to get people to just go give you a shot. They want more assurance before they come see you. They end up loving it just as much, but it's harder to get them in the seats. A lot, a lot of options out there. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, I think we still haven't quite understood how detrimental Netflix is to this right. business. Right. It seems silly, but no. really... I mean, there was a t- when when you started playing, you had to go to the movies, watch Johnny Carson, or go to see Bell Flag. Right, it's a much more isolated uh, world now. Everybody can just stay home and have all these options. And if you're a little shy, you know you don't have to deal with that. You can just stay home and have this whole uh, experience in your imagination watching something on television. What well, what keeps bringing you because you're working on this new? Is it? I hear it's done. The new bluegrass Bell Flag, bluegrass. Uh, well, I've got sixteen. 
uh, tracks, so uh, but they're pretty long. So if it's a double album, I'm not done. And if it's a single album, I'm going to have to cut some stuff that I'm in love with. So I'm, it's a bit of a, a thing i got to decide. I know double albums generally are not a, not a wise move commercially, but I may just have to do it because it's been since 1996 since I've done a bluegrass record. The uh, transformative record for me. I mean, I, I actually listened to it on the way down again, and it brought me right back. What a beautiful you, record. You're talking about... Uh, uh, Tales from the Acoustic Planet Volume 2. The bluegrass sessions. Yeah, well, it was kind of a high, high watermark for me. And 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 sales wise too, because it was uh, over two hundred thousand units, which was really quite a, quite a, quite good sales for. And it was because of the flectones. So so I started feeling, hey, I'm bringing. Um, all these people to, that love the flectones to see what I've been, you know, where I come from, and show them the level of the bluegrass, the great bluegrass players that I love so much. So check it out. And 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 I had a I had their ear, and a lot of people, because bluegrass wasn't a part of the flectones, but they knew the banjo was a bluegrass thing. That well, I've never heard Bela play bluegrass. They they hadn't looked back. And now a new release comes out on Warner Brothers uh, called Bluegrass. Bluegrass is in the title. Well, if you want to hear Bela play bluegrass, this is where you you should go. And all of a sudden, people really went, and they loved that record. And um, so Spanish, I was very, Spanish very point fortunate. On the record was a killer for me. Thanks, man. Yeah, I, I just loved that band of guys playing together. It was this is like Drive all over again, except you know. Uh, eight years later I, I listened to it on the plane and i thought what a nice artifact it's become not just of you guys in that moment but also that hartford and earl are both on it yeah how lovely that is yeah and i got three takes out of earl and then he said uh his hand he said my hand my fingers are kind of tender because he wasn't playing he wasn't warming up he just came over and we played a few takes and i took that with me on a tour to europe and i, and I would sit around with it on a airplane and try and figure out which part would to use what because it was like we, I'm one complete take and like an opening of take and then a, an extra take or something like that. And I, I just made sure it was the best it could be because it was my golden chance to play with Earl. You got it rolling? Yeah. And I've never had any remorse about working hard on music. You know, I... It's nice when stuff all happens live and you can use a complete take, but, um, you know, live shows is where you do that. The studio is where you try to get to get it to be what you always dreamed it could be. Mm-hmm. And the ironic thing about that is when you work really hard in the studio by hook or by crook, by overdubbing, by editing, whatever it takes, um, once you go out and get to know that record and, and do a couple of weeks of gigs, you're going to play it even better. But if you don't go through that process of perfecting then you will ne- so I look at I look at, at records as the rehearsal for for the the music. And it used to be we would rehearse enough in you know some bygone day we would play so like months of rehearsal before you'd record, and then you know you ought to be able to lay it down in a couple of takes. But nobody takes that kind of time anymore, and it ends up happening in the studio. So therefore, I, I feel okay about whatever it takes. Um, and I'm also very comfortable with the fact that there's music that is rough, that is great that way. Like um, It's like the gradation of sandpaper. It's all still sandpaper. There can be fine emery sandpaper that's super, super fine, and then there's sort of super rough sandpaper. They're both great sandpaper. And so music can be super rough and super awesome and super fine. So I feel like this, the music that I do should be really precise and everything should be 
every box should be checked that's possible. Well, well that, that leads me to my kind of my final question. But before I get to that, are you, um, um, what keeps bringing you back to bluegrass? You're doing another bluegrass sessions record. I love it. I love playing with Sam and Jerry and I love, now I'm finding out about all these new guys that I, I hadn't, this was one of the things that I did here is, is get to play with a lot of people I hadn't played with before. Um, there's a rhythm and there's a way that the banjo fits into the music. And I'm also stuck with like a lot of tunes that have not been used that I've written over the years that are just been sitting there and they start to collect dust and they only exist in my mind. Nobody knows about them, but me. And so part of it is a closure thing to get them out of the, out of my brain. So I don't have to worry about remembering them and, you know, getting them and losing them someday. Cause I, uh, so just get them recorded, you know, and, um, I don't know. It just felt like the right time. You just like it. You like, you still have, you oh, still I love, love bluegrass. The I same way it. you did when you heard Earl Scruggs play Beverly Hills. I same. love it. And I love playing in a groove and rhythm section. The thing that stopped me for all this time was Tony Rice. Was, uh, and I finally had to come to terms with the fact that Tony Rice was not going to come back and, um, and be playing again the way he was and, um, and, and doesn't, maybe even doesn't want to. But uh, that he's, um, he was the thing that made the magic for me on those two records, on Drive and Bluegrass Sessions. So I, I kind of felt like I couldn't really make that magic without him. And it took me this long, all these years of playing with the house band with Brian Sutton, and me going, I love Brian, but it's not that the, the, the Tony thing is just so profound. And finally, um, playing with some different people and realizing that I could... I can't get Tony, but I can get some things that Tony can't do, you know, and I could find that groove again with different people. So who's playing guitar? Is Brian playing guitar? I have a lot of people. I have Brian on, on some stuff, but I also have Cody Kilby. Yeah. I also have Billy Strings. Great guitar player, yeah. They're all phenomenal. Yeah. Then on mandolin, <laughs> I have Sam, but I also have Dominic Leslie. I have David Grisman. I have Chris Thiele. On fiddle, I have Stuart, but I also have Michael Cleveland, and I also have Billy Contreras. And on bass, I have Mark Schatz. I also have... Royal Massat, who plays with Billy. I also have Paul, Paul Cowart. So, uh, and on Dobro, I have Jerry Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sticking with him. I, I told him, everyone else, I'm, I'm having lots of different people, but if you uh, play the instruments, but if you want to be the guy, you know, for the whole record, you're welcome to be it. And he said he, he does. So he's on nine or 10 of the tracks already, and he'll end up on, on some more. I should talk to Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't uh, I haven't reached out yet. I'll, I'll talk to Jerry maybe next time. I, I, I got to talk to Jerry and I got to talk to Sam. Yes. It's been hard to get in touch with Sam. It's yeah. Been, it's been hard to reach him. And I got to talk to Tony somehow. Tony that, Rice, yeah, yeah. That's sort of the white whale. If you could get him, that would be a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm working on it. Apparently, if you show up to the house, you have a good chance. Yeah. Then calling. You have a better chance if you just show up and say, hey, I'm here. Well, if you could do that and like not have that be your only shot like you like park yourself in reedsville or wherever he lives for four days like knock on this door the first day and have him say oh man i can't but uh and you say well i'm uh is there a time you could i'm here yeah yeah um and just park there with something to do some project that you need to do you could do in a hotel room that would be the way to do it i think because he he'll 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 say oh I, i can't do anything today man and you say oh what about tomorrow Oh, I can't. What was it? You know what I mean? And see if the trick. But once you get into the interview, you'll have some, you'll get some great stuff. He's I a sage. He's a yeah, and he's a spirit. You know, he's a he's he a, is. he's a I'm, he's I'm, very smart guy. And I can't I can't. I was talking to Critter the other day about how there are still moments on those records that I have no idea what he's doing. Yeah, I have no idea how he did it. Well, I, I always call him the wild card. That was the thing that he brought because like. Um, 
everybody. Well, Stewart also could be a wild card. All of them could be, but he was the one that would do it to the rhythm section in a way that was very unpredictable and make the thing dance. And he would do something like Sam would get mad at him for some of the things he would do. Um, and he'd say, Tony, stop doing that. That's the, that's the melody. You're not supposed to. And I'd be like, no, Sam, let him do it. Let him do it. I'm thinking of like Sea Rock City. He would just all of a sudden take off onto some idea he was having spontaneously and never do it again. And I loved it whenever he would get a, a wild hair and do it. And I would always make it into the final edit. On Polka on the Banjo, he plays a break behind the, the song. Like John is singing, you know, I think the second verse. And I only caught it on the way down. I had these headphones yeah. on. And I said, Tony Rice is playing guitar solo right now. Yeah. And it fits perfectly. It makes the thing move beautifully. But it's who like, does that? Who takes a guitar solo in the middle of a... She takes her by the hand. I begin to swing her. She knows I never miss a chance to steal a kiss or dance the polka with her. I'm sure he did it on that one take, and I liked it so much, I said, that's got to be in. Because yeah. he would just, just... He's a wild card. I guess Vassar. I have Someone sent me a board recording of... Vassar, who just pretty much from the beginning of the performance with the band to the end, I think it was with Rowan or something like that, played fiddle. Yeah, I think of <laughs> Vassar had an on switch and an off switch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as much faster as you want, just turn turn him on yeah. and he'll go. And, here's, and it'll it be up. great. And when you're done, just um, fade it back out. I guess like I guess the the two things I'm 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 curious about, but maybe I'll just ask one of them is uh, I feel like there's a lot of invisible work that we haven't talked about that I think is really important to your story, which is the practice. And um, uh, you told me, you know, I mean, you, you saw your son, you know, kind of get obsessive about golf and you saw yourself get kind of obsessive about the banjo. But just how important is that practice, that kind of unsexy work to becoming kind of who you are as Bella Fleck? Well, first of all, it's not unsexy. It's the sexiest part of the work. Because I always tell people, like, we just did this banjo camp, and, and I tell everybody, if you can get to where you love to practice, you have got a shot at making some progress on, at your music. And I also said, um, if you can do it while you're young, it's like um, um, income averaging or something, you know, where you, where, you, where you put in money every month, and it grows and it grows and it grows. Um, the, your, your time when you're in your 20s you know, or from your teens until you're 30 is, is worth five of your time from when you're 50 to your 60. You know what I mean? It's, it's much harder to learn things and retain them at this age than, than it was back then. So I always tell people that. But um, yeah, if you can enjoy the practicing, then, um, you, then you, you got a shot. I love my time with my banjo by myself sitting working on stuff. You finding much time with the kids now? No. <laughs> Very hard to come by very hard to come by so that's that's a tough part right now but you know i've done quite a lot yeah i'm not retiring no but if i if i back off a little bit for a couple of years i mean i saw it um juno you know is he's six and he was just like oh he was almost things were kind of coming back to normal and i could see it coming back and i could see my time to play coming back and i'm still going out and touring and doing things when i'm on tour with the flectones or with sakir and edgar or doing something like that i practice around the clock that's my time you know, and um, and if I've got something coming up, I just have to steal that time from my family. Are you fundamentals? Are you practicing scales? Are you practicing? I, I practice what's coming. Right. Pra- so if I'm going to go out and play with Chick Corea, I'm practicing. I'm thinking, how am I going to be a better jazz musician to play with him? How am I going to be a better partner to him? Is my time solid? Do I know how to get through these tunes? Can I come up with some new ideas for how to get through these tunes? Are there a couple of new things I can bring? Um, with flectones, it's like... Uh, 
uh, well, it's just very different muscles than I'm using the rest of the time. So I have to get those back. I can't walk on stage having not done that and expect to be able to play like that. I have to, I have to get up to full, you know, marathon speed to play, play with those guys. How are you feeling about the future of this music, of bluegrass music? I think it's great. It's going to be hit and miss. You know, you get these uh, these gold mines that sort of fall in from 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 nowhere. The Allison Krauses and the Chris Thieles and Gnomes and uh, Stuart Duncans. I've seen them pop up. They don't come every day. Now, there's a lot of people playing. There's more people than ever playing, which means the the talent pool is pretty big. And people, some of these people are going to start. I know we have a Billy Strings that turned up here in the last few years. It took me a while to notice, but he's been at it for a good while to sound as good as he does. So. So they're going to keep on coming, but they're not going to be... Uh, I don't think you're ever going to have like 10 of them at once, these sort of wonder kind people that, that have a chance to broaden. Um, but then again, you never know. You never know. I mean, there was a period in the jazz age, you know, where you had, you know, Charlie Parker and you had Miles Davis and you still had Benny Goodman and you had, you know, all these different uh, eras of great people and all these new people coming and Ornette Coleman coming in, Coltrane and... I mean, it seems like it was all at one time. It really wasn't, but but there was just a huge talent pool in the jazz world there for a while. And and those, I, when I look back at the uh, the '80s, you know, Tony Rice, Sam Bush, David Grisman, Daryl Anger, Mark O'Connor, Edgar Meyer, you know, the, all those, the, um, Bill Keith, Richard Green, all of these people, Tony Trishka. I can keep on. I can keep going. Mm-hmm. I think that may be the golden age of newgrass where all of these incredible, powerful forces were active at the same time. Andy Statman, um, it goes on and on. Jerry Douglas, you know, um, so that's a pretty incredible time because those are all formative people. Not everybody I hear now who's good is formative, like they're going to change the game. Right, 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 right. I know what you mean. They're really good. The the basic level is higher than it's ever been. There's a lot more really good banjo players, really good mandolin players. Thiele has just changed that whole... Mm -hmm. Uh, thing you know um not that recently anymore but uh there's a lot you know it's very normal to play them and and o'connor did that with the fiddle he made it very common to play fiddle at this whole other level what's he i mean do you do you still talk to him i feel like he he was part of the scene and then he kind of went off and did he pulled himself out yeah Yeah, he pulled himself out of the game for for his own reasons and and so it was it was a big bummer to lose him from the scene and have him sort of not have he was really trying to make his name away from that scene, and that was and so in order to do it, he did kind of what I did, which was sort of remove himself and um, almost uh, look down on it a little bit. And yeah. I made some mistakes like that myself, and I shouldn't say that that's what he did. It's but that's what you, you, you did. He he wanted to be seen in the classical world. He was trying to write concertos. He was trying to get out of that world and, and prove himself in that other world. And and he took he took his licks, and he also had a lot of big successes. Um, so, um, at a certain point, his kids showed him the value of the music he did when he was younger, his, his kids, uh, and his wife, his current wife, who's a fiddler, they were like, ah, that strength in number stuff was really cool. That yeah. stuff with those guys. So with, um, why don't you play with those guys? And he, he started thinking, well, why don't I play with those guys? Is he on this new record? Is he? No. Um, I don't know if it's impossible if i record some more i may ask him again i did ask him but um if he wanted to he'd be welcome but uh, there's some talk right now i'd love to see that band there's a little bit of discussion about something with some of those guys and him um that uh, may or may not come to fruition but i'm hopeful it's the first time it's really been on the table for a long time bail it's been nice talking to you man same here really enjoyable thanks for making the time thanks
all right, that's it for the podcast. Uh, thanks a lot to Bela Fleck for having me. Um, later in the podcast series, you're going to hear my conversation with Tony Trishka. I talked to Tony right before I spoke to Bela, like kind of right in a row. Bela kind of gave me his basement for the full afternoon to do interviews down there. I'm eternally grateful uh, to him for doing that and also just being so open and honest and giving me tips on how to interview Tony Rice. You heard it right here. I have I have a path of how I can interview Tony Rice. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I promise. If you missed our chat with Alice Gerard or Ricky Skaggs or Del McCurry, they're all available on our feed. Two weeks from now, our guest will be Allison Brown. Uh, I spoke to her in Nashville. She's someone with a really interesting story. Not only is she a banjo virtuoso, but she is also someone who went to Harvard, uh, you know, did extremely well there, had an opportunity to make, I don't know, a gazillion dollars uh, and found her way back to the music that she loved and really followed her heart, but also ended up building an empire and roots music as well with compass records. So a real pioneer. I'm excited to talk to Allison. If you want to drop us a line, I'm at Tom at toyheartpodcast.com. Drop me a line. Tell me what you think. And most importantly, tell me who else we should talk to. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. If you're interested in Bela Fleck's music, A, I mean, there's just an incredible amount of music out there, which is unbelievable. But there's a new version of his film, Throw Down Your Heart, he and his brother made, uh, with a new CD of duets by Tumani Diabate. It's the film. It's 60 minutes of video extras. Uh, the first two CDs and a new book and art. Abigail Washburn, uh, who is an incredible banjo player, um, is also in a duo with Bela, and they're also... Uh, an item uh, has an exciting collaboration with Wu Fei, amazing Chinese musician that's available on Smithsonian Folkways. Uh, you can also check out Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn on Facebook, where every Friday they're doing banjo extravaganza recitals from their living room, which are just tickling my heart these days and getting me through the pandemic, which is something I just said out loud, getting me through the pandemic. That's a, that's where we are in our lives right now. we got to find things to get through. The pandemic. Toy Heart is produced by Stephanie Coleman and me, Tom Power. Our executive producer is Amy Reitenauer Jacobs, with help as always from the entire BGS team, including producer Chris Jacobs. Yep. Associate editor Justin Hiltner. Ooh, yeah. Managing editor Craig Shelburne. Love that guy. And all of the amazing writers and contributors that make BGS the best source for roots, culture, redefined. Discover more at thebluegrasssituation.com. Our good friends, and I think uh, cousin. Sister, brother, sibling podcast, The Breakdown on BGS, have a new episode about Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, uh, the soundtrack that changed my life and a lot of people's lives. That is a really beautiful thing. You should check that out as well. This show was mixed by Mike Laval and Stephanie Coleman. Transcription done by Rob McLaren, a great banjo player in his own right in a great group called the Barrel Boys and Union Duke. Our theme song, Toy Heart, was performed by Kristen Andreessen and Chris Critter Eldridge. Kristen is an amazing songwriter in her own right. Check out her records, especially Gondolier, her most recent one, beautiful record. Chris Critter Eldridge, hot band called the Punch Brothers. You might be familiar with them. They play the old twangy twang. But in addition to that, um, he's in a really beautiful duo with a great guitar virtuoso who sneezes out a flat diminished all the time. Julian Lodge, they had a bunch of dates postponed. The new dates... Uh, are available on their website, Lodge, L-A-G-E, Eldridge, E-L-D-R-I-D-G-E, dot com. All right, I feel like I just gave you side effects to a sleeping pill. Uh, like and subscribe and find us on Instagram at toyheartpodcast.com. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends about it. And if you feel like writing a review, that really does help us out. Rate the podcast too. We'll see you soon. Later on.